digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. My guest this afternoon on Digging in the Dirt is Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, Michael E. Mann, who has come back for another visit to Digging in the Dirt to talk about his new book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. It's a timely analysis of where we're at in the debate over climate warming and recent current events in our society that are changing the playing field. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Thanks, Kevin. Good to be with you. Now, you start your book in a striking way with this statement. There is general scientific agreement that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels. There are some potentially catastrophic events that must be considered. Rainfall might get heavier in some regions and in other places might turn to desert. Some countries would have their agriculture output reduced or destroyed. Man has a time window of five to 10 years before the need for hard decisions regarding changes in energy strategies that might become critical. Once the effects are measurable, they might not be reversible. Now, Michael, I read this to my wife and asked her to guess who said it. And she said, oh, Al Gore. <laughs> and it's funny that she didn't know that you wrote in your book exactly that. But it wasn't, it wasn't that, was it? No. Who was it? <laughs> no, it, amazing, isn't it? 1970, that was ExxonMobil the world's largest and most powerful fossil fuel company. And they, instead of owning up to it, owning up to what their own scientists were telling them, they buried that report. Um, they got rid of their science uh, division, or at least the division that was studying the, the potential threat of climate change and doubled down in a campaign of denial and deceit over the ensuing decades. That's part of why we're where we are now. Wait, what year was that? Um, the, the report, I believe, was 1976-77. Um, yeah. Can you imagine how much um, progress we could have made if we'd actually started dealing with it then? I always think about that. It, it, yeah, this is the way I like to think about it. If you look at the curve that describes how quickly we need to bring our carbon emissions down, so they've ramped up, you reach a peak, and then you come down the other side of that peak. And we're, we're at a peak. We want to come down the other side of that peak now. Um, if we had acted back then, it would be a bunny slope. If you're a skier or you're familiar with the terminology, it would have been a gradual, easy slope that even a beginner skier like myself could uh, do. Instead, what we have is a black double diamond slope that we need to go down now. We need to bring those carbon emissions down by a factor of two in 10 years now to avoid warming the planet below truly catastrophic levels. That's what those decades of inaction have bought us, a much tougher time decarbonizing our uh, civilization in time to avoid climate disaster. I was going to ask this question, but you're making me think, why, why did they decide to do that? Is it to maximize profit before they're forced to change? That's what a company corporation does. They maximize profit. Um, and, you know, uh, there isn't a corporate consciousness. Um, we like to think that there is, but, you know, 
corporations like ExxonMobil seek to maximize their profits. And um, often that comes at the expense of what we call externalities, damages costs that aren't borne by them, uh, namely the, the cost of the climate damage that's done by our reliance on fossil fuels, fossil fuels that ExxonMobil helped keep us addicted to. And so it doesn't mean that the, the executives are, are bad people. <laughs> I'm sure there are you know, our Exxon mobile executives who, who do care about their children and their grandchildren and don't wanna leave behind a degraded planet for them. But in the end, that's what corporations do. That's why we have regulations. That's why we have restrictions on corporate behavior. That's why we have laws and policies um, to make sure that the damage that is done by certain corporate behaviors like carbon emissions is taken into account, that there's a price signal in the market in the form of a price on carbon or subsidies for renewable energy to speed up that transition away from fossil fuels. There are lots of ways to do that, but we need ultimately policies that will incentivize this uh, very rapid shift we now have to make. Hmm. Uh, you've been out on the forefront of climate scientists exposing deniers and putting solid science in front of the public for some time. Why is this book called The New Climate Wars? What's new about it? Uh, so uh, the, the old climate war is what we just talked about, right? Uh, was the effort by the fossil fuel industry and, and those doing their bidding to try to convince us that there isn't a problem, to attack the science, to undermine the science and the scientists, um, to convince the public and policymakers that we don't have a problem. And that just isn't possible anymore because people can see the impacts of climate change playing out in real time. And so it's very difficult to tell people there isn't a problem when they can see it with their own two eyes. And so what we have seen instead, we haven't seen them give up in their effort to keep us addicted to fossil fuels, which is the fundamentally is the, 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 um, you know, that, that, that is their, their, their prime motive. Um, what we've seen is instead a shift in their tactics to other uh, arguably, um, you know, just as nefarious uh, insidious tactics aimed at keeping us addicted to fossil fuels, um, which is to say, for example, convincing us that the solution isn't regulation or policy, carbon pricing, uh, incentives, renewables. Uh, the solution is just us, you know, decreasing our own individual carbon footprint, um, as if we should ignore the overwhelming carbon footprint, which is the polluters, the fossil fuel industry. Um, it's dividing us, getting us fighting with each other, climate advocates fighting with each other about lifestyle choices, right? Getting us finger pointing, um, uh, carbon shaming each other uh, over our, you know, uh, carbon purity. Uh, you need to become a vegan. You need to stop driving. If they can make it all about individual behavior, once again, it shifts the burden from our politicians to enact policies to solve this problem. Uh, offering up false solutions. And there's a book coming out next month by Bill Gates, which falls into, unfortunately, uh, sort of fall, falls uh, victim to this idea that the solutions to this problem are simply a matter of engineering. We can engineer our way out of this. We can uh, engage in geoengineering, um, shooting particles into the stratosphere to try to block out some of the sunlight to offset the warming effect of increasing greenhouse gases. What could possibly go wrong? Um, obviously, the principle of unintended consequences uh, 
rears its head when we start to think along those lines. And so we have to be aware of all of these roadblocks, all these tactics that are being deployed because we're so close, we're so close now here in the US, especially with this last election, we're so close to seeing meaningful action on climate, but we still have these roadblocks that are being thrown in our way by the polluters, by what I call the inactivists, the forces of inaction, the fossil fuel industry and, and those promoting their agenda. We need to recognize those tactics and, and combat them uh, and not be distracted by them. And that's really why I wrote this book, to make sure we keep our, you know, um, our eyes focused on the prize here. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the, the framing of the argument, which you, you go into in some depth in the book. You write that one of the problems is that we as citizens are told to recycle, fly less, you just sort of touched on it, eat yeah. less meat, all the ways we've been told that we can slow climate change, but the inordinate amount of emphasis is on the individual's behavior, not on the system that is creating the problem right now. Yeah. Could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's this what we call a deflection campaign. Uh, make it all about uh, individual carbon footprints and uh, behavior, lifestyle, um, to sort of redirect uh, attention, to deflect attention away from calls for regulation policy. Uh, you and I, we can't, you know, enact a price on carbon. Uh, we can't you know, uh, provide subsidies for the uh, renewable energy industry. We can't build renewable green infrastructure. Um, we can't put restrictions on the fossil fuel industry. These are only things that our policymakers can do. And so we need them to be acting on our behalf rather than uh, acting as agents for the fossil fuel industry, which has too often been the case, a fossil fuel industry that has uh, funded um, the campaigns of uh, climate change denying uh, you know climate change denying uh, politicians um, and today uh, those politicians uh, many of them are still doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry uh, by again sort of buying into these other tactics not supporting the the systemic changes that we need to see so look we should all do those things that we can do to minimize our own environmental footprint um, they often you know, save us money, they make us healthier, uh, they make us feel better about ourselves, set a good example for others. You know, why wouldn't we do those things? Of course we should do them, but we can't allow them to somehow be viewed as a substitute for the systemic changes that we need. And the only way we'll get those systemic changes is by getting politicians, again, who are willing to do you know, what's right for us rather than the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. And the good news is that in this last election, we voted in a president who supports bold action on climate and Joe Biden and a Democratic Congress, both a House and Senate, that uh, is uh, ready to move forward on climate legislation. So that's good news. And again, you know, there's some reasons for cautious optimism. That's why we have to recognize the, the roadblocks that still um, exist to make sure that we get past them. So where do you think you know, the person out there listening right now should direct their energy in trying to, I guess, turn the, the attention back to the, the major emitters, if you want to call yeah. it that. Well, you know, so we've voted in some politicians who have said the right things. We need to hold them accountable, right? We need to make sure that they follow through. And one of the battles that we'll see pretty early on, look, the Biden administration is going to have quite a bit of latitude in implementing climate policy through executive actions. And they're already incorporating policy 
climate policy into every single um, department and division of the government. So that's the good news. We're moving forward on that front. But we also need legislation. Fundamentally, we need climate legislation that will help level the playing field, as I said before, so that renewable energy can compete fairly against fossil fuel energy. It's going to be difficult, frankly, to get something as expansive as a Green New Deal, um, a very broad, expansive bill laden with uh, social programs, uh, full employment, health care, et cetera, to get something that expansive through a 50-50 divided Senate. But I do think there is an opportunity for us to pass meaningful climate legislation, consensus climate legislation, compromise climate legislation over the next two years uh, by getting you know, uh, at least a handful, um, maybe as many as a dozen moderate Republicans who don't wanna be on the wrong side of history. They don't wanna be on the wrong side of this issue. And maybe in particular in the wake of the political episodes we've seen play out over the last several weeks, there may be a groundswell of, um, of goodwill now, at least in this segment of the Republican Party for bipartisan compromise. And, and so we could see meaningful climate legislation and we need that, right? Because executive actions alone aren't gonna be enough. We need to use every tool in the toolbox and that includes legislative uh, tools. Yeah, you know, I'm sorry to be pessimistic, but you know, with lobbyists and the the weight of all the money that's thrown around in this area, it's, it seems to go really slow. And they marshal the forces of what you call of inaction, the climate inactivists. You want to talk to that? <laughs> because I think that you're right. You nailed it right there. Yeah, so we are, you know, there are powerful, you know, vested interests that are still determined to try to prevent or at least delay, right? Every mm -hmm. year that they can delay action, they make additional trillions of dollars in profits. And so there is still an effort to slow down that transition. Uh, I think they recognize they can't stop it, but if they slow it down, they make huge uh, profits in the meantime, because they've got these uh, potentially stranded assets, um, billions of dollars worth of fossil fuels that are still in the ground and they want to monetize those assets. And so they're going to do everything they can to draw this out. And so they use language like uh, innovation. Let's let the market innovate. Uh, let, let the market just sort of sort this out on its own as if that alone in the absence of real climate policy is going to get us to where we need to go. We're talking about adaptation, right? We, we just need to adapt to the changes that are in store. These are all that whole um, discourse of adaptation and resilience and innovation is a way of kicking the can down the road mm -hmm. or carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, we'll just um, you know, continue to burn fossil fuels, but we'll require you know, technology that doesn't really exist at scale yet anyways. <laughs> it would take decades to really implement it. We'll use this technology to capture the carbon. It's a way, again, of kicking the can down the road. Um, so they're using every tool at their disposal to try to slow down this transition. But I think that they have met up with an irresistible force now, which is the collective will of the people. I'll tell you, one of the secret weapons in this fight against fossil fuel interests and the inactivists that I describe in the book is the youth climate movement, um, the youth climate advocates like uh, Greta Thunberg um, and all these other um, you know, kids who have marched in the streets and raised awareness for 
you know, climate action over the past several years, millions of people out there demonstrating for climate action. It's shifted the whole conversation. It's put a huge amount of pressure on the fossil fuel industry. I think they know their days are numbered. And so they're on the defensive. That's why they're engaged in these rear guard sort of uh, tactics, right? They're not even denying the problem anymore. They're turning to these other insidious tactics to try to slow things down. They're on, you know, they, they, they are retreating. <laughs> Their forces are retreating and we need to keep marching forward. Yeah, you, in the book, you say that the deniers are basically through because everybody is saying you can't deny that there's influence yeah. by humanity on the climate change. But they've changed into, uh, you, you label them like the seven Ds of deceivers, dissemblers, downplayers, <laughs> deflectors, dividers, delayers, and doomers. Yes. <laughs> Willing participants in a multi-pronged strategy to deflect, blame, and divide the public. Yeah, it's uh, that's really a good way of putting it. I think, you know, that's what's going on. And I mean, we don't have that much time to let them do this. No, we don't. And you alluded to one important thing that we haven't talked a bit about yet, which is sort of doom, doomism. Yeah, I'll get there. I want to get there for sure. So all these little strategies are just another way, again, from what we were speaking about earlier, to continue to make profit while while they know that they're running out of time. But they, they let's let's get as much out of this yeah. as we can before we have to shut it all down. Exactly. That's the game at this point as they see it. And then what if, what if we go too far? <laughs> That's the problem, isn't it? Well, the problem is that, yes, what is good for them is bad for the planet. Um, <laughs> to put it as basically as one can possibly put it. The actions which maximize the profit of the fossil fuel industry at this point are the actions that put us in the greatest harm, that put us in the planet in jeopardy. And they have a lot of assets that's what the oil and the coal and the gas is in the ground. And yeah. we really can't afford to let them take those assets out. So they become stranded assets. And then right. that affects the economies and, and the banks and the loans and all that stuff comes into play. That's right. It's already coming into play, right? Because I think there's a recognition that those assets will have to remain stranded. That makes the fossil fuel industry a bad long-term investment now. And you're seeing that, um, the, that sort of risk, it's called transition risk. Um, play out in the markets. Um, when it comes to uh, investment firms, the, the finance industry, uh, the Bank of England, uh, Blackstone, a lot of the major uh, financiers and, and, and investment banks are starting to say that we need to look more closely at climate risk when it comes to what, you know, what sorts of projects we continue to fund. And that is a really important uh, innovation here because it hasn't gotten as much attention. Uh, who would have thought it that it may be the finance industry that actually acts first because they see the writing on the wall and it comes down to a simple bottom line. Right. Um, this will know, disrupt their profits. Yeah. Yeah. I look at New York State, right? I mean, they've decided to stop investing in fossil fuels. That's right. And, uh, you know, and the Biden administration uh, has also uh, committed to, uh, you know, to, to, to cut subsidies for the fossil fuel industry and to no longer green lighting projects like the Keystone XL pipeline. The, the Biden administration has said they're going to block that now. Hmm. We're talking to Michael E. Mann. He's got a new book out called The New Climate War and the Fight to Take Back Our Planet. It's a really quite positive look at um, things. And Michael believes that we're on the cusp of a new environmental attitude and that there's, there's going to be a lot of change coming up here and that we all can help to 
push that along. But there are problems. You know, we were talking about the deceivers, dissemblers, and downplayers. Let's talk about the doomers because uh, I think it's an important part of your book, and I th- and that's why you brought it up too. Because you know, sometimes people that would be considered allies. Uh, unwittingly help the side that is wants to continue the situation. No, that's exactly right. And that's what's happened here. You know, people of, of goodwill, of good intentions, who have fallen victim to sort of doomist framing, this idea that it's too late to do anything uh, about the problem. There's an op-ed in the New York Times today by Roy Scranton that advances a doomist narrative. It even name checks me in a way that very much uh, misrepresents my position on all of this, which mm-hmm. is a bit amusing. It would be amusing if it weren't so serious, in fact. Um, so this, you know, the purveying of doom and gloom, if you really believe it's too late to do anything about the problem, then, you know, it leads you potentially down the same path of inaction as outright denial. And so what some of the you know, bad actors, the inactivists have been doing is literally sort of um, fanning the flames of doomism. Uh, it isn't to say that people who fall victim to, to doom, uh, doomist framing are bad actors. Um, many of them are staunch climate advocates, but they've become so convinced that it's too late. They've become dispirited. Uh, they've fallen into despair um, and they are becoming disengaged from climate solutions because of it. Uh, That's a huge win for the fossil fuel interests and the inactivists because again, they don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination. They want Mm -hmm. you disengaged from efforts to demand action, to hold our uh, policymakers and corporations accountable for climate action. And so, you know, bad state actors, Russia um, in particular that, uh, you know, has, been engaged in an effort to defeat climate action here in the United States, in Canada, in Australia, and around the world, because fossil fuels is their greatest asset. And uh, Putin believes that um, their best way, path forward is to extract and and uh, you know and monetize uh, their buried fossil fuels. And because of that, um, uh, Putin is engaged in efforts to sow discord and division um, online using uh, you know, troll armies and bots. Um, and we've seen that there's studies that can see that it's Russia that is behind some of these uh, bot armies online on Twitter that try to get people fighting with each other to try to divide the community that try to deflect attention away from um, needed systemic solutions, all the things that we've talked about. And uh, Fanning the flames of doom um, is one of the techniques that they've used to try to depress enthusiasm for climate action among those who would otherwise be climate activists. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sort of like telling them, oh, why don't you go away and get ready for the apocalypse and and prepare for the worst, you know, and not worry about this. Right. It's, you know, the the language that we see from the doomers, um, it resembles sort of the doomsday preppers that, you know. Sure. um, That, yeah, it's and it's disengagement, right? If they if you if you disengage, that's a win for them. They don't want you engaged. But, you know, also there is that issue that if we don't 
do it, there could be some doom in the future. I mean, yep. you know, that's a pro the problem, right? You're sort of a balancing act of how much to worry about both. I mean, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's new book, The Ministry for yeah. the Future. It's interesting because he starts it off with a huge ecological disaster yep. that's a heat wave that kills 20 yeah. million people. And yeah. that is sort of the catalyst for a lot of societies in, on, in yeah. the world and humanity to get off their butt and do something. That's right. But I mean, what, what do you think about that? I mean, there there is the possibility that something like that could happen down the future. I mean, he is speculative science fiction, but he's very thoughtful about what he's doing. And, and what do you think about that? Is you think that we're headed to something that could be a moment where it really does people? I mean, I think they're already waking up. And I think you believe that, too, that they're waking up to heavier rains, more winds, fires, all that stuff is saying, oh, yeah, we have a problem. But do you think there could be something like he presents as a catastrophic event that moves things in a way that we wouldn't expect? Well, we sort of seen seen some of those events, right? Devastating wildfires and, and heat waves. And I mean, so it's a matter of extent. And, and the one in the book is just, it kills so many people that it, it, it demands even greater attention than any event that we faced thus far. But, you know, Australia certainly experienced wow, what I would describe tough. as apocalyptic um, mm -hmm. climate events in uh, the summer, the, uh, the, 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 the black summer, they're calling it, of la uh, last year, with the massive uh, bushfires that spread out around the continent. Um, so I actually did a, an event with Stan a few months ago after his book came out, and we're doing another one in, in March. Um, oh, he's my next guest, in fact. Yeah, oh, great. Well, he's you know, wonderful. He's a wonderful writer, and he really gets it. He gets the climate problem. And what I like about the way he frames it is it isn't one of these, you know, um, doomist narratives. There are too many of those. He mm -hmm. sees the potential for a good future, but, you know, but it's in, he's not a Pollyanna either, as you note. Um, we go through some really rough times on our way there, and there's no way we're going to avoid that because we're already seeing damaging, dangerous climate change impacts in Australia, Puerto Rico, the west coast of the U.S., the Gulf Coast of the U.S., low-lying island nations around the world. Um, uh, right now, uh, tropical Africa, uh, withstanding uh, the impacts of another uh, deadly hurricane. Um, we're seeing these impacts. We're already seeing damage. And so we're not going to escape it because it's here. But if we can get past it, and if we can wake up, and that's the vision that I like so much of um, Ministry for the Future, that there is still a good future that's possible, not a dystopian future, but something more resembling a utopian future, where in fact we reorganize civilization around a new set of principles that uh, really value sustainability and, and, and quality of life over gross domestic product. And there's a lot of interesting, as you know, um, economic arguments there. And one of the things I like is that Stan actually you know, recognizes the importance of market mechanisms to, to, you know, we need to use the system that exists now to create incentives to change that system. Sure. And so he advocates using market mechanisms, which has become out of favor with some sort of climate progressives. And so I, I sort of, I like the framing of that book. It, it coincides well, his sort of, you know, fictional framing um, is sort of uh, almost a the, the counterpart to uh, the non-fictional framing that I try to provide in, in my book. 
Yeah, well, you mentioned the same thing that he does. And I think I do try to do on digging in the dirt too, is try to bring the gentler people more interested in working with nature on and talking about that and how we need yeah. to have a renaissance in this area about how we have to take care of the planet and be with the planet, not dominate the planet. Yeah. And that's what I like about what you're writing in your new book and what um, Robinson wrote in his new book. And, you know, some of the people, my guests that I've been coming on are all trying to work that way, um, trying yeah. to help nature. Doug Tallamy just was on and he just said, hey, you know, this is something that, you know, nature will bounce back if we allow it and it'll even do better if we help it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And uh, our actions, every action that we take um, makes a difference and, and makes a better future for us. And so there's a fallacy. Again, the doomism often <clears throat> buys into this fallacy that runaway warming is inevitable and the science doesn't support that. So it's just bad on the science. That's part of the problem. It's bad science feeding a paralyzing narrative, you know, of inevitability. And, you know, the, the reality is that, yes, some bad things have already happened. So we're not going to escape harm, but we can prevent the worst impacts from playing out if we act now. Right. And, you know, the, these doom, sort of doomist narratives, ironically, uh, potentially could have the effect of disengaging people and preventing the very action that's necessary to avoid doom. And, and that's, you know, and you, you, you pointed that out earlier, and that's really important to keep in mind that the surest path uh, to a dystopian future is buying in now to the idea that that is inevitable when it isn't. Right, I believe that too. It's becoming more apparent. I mean, I think we need the corporations to buy in in the in the banking and the finance. Yeah. I mean, in a big I, that'll push it quicker. Uh, yep. It's all of us little guys and and scientists are are fine, but we really do need some of the big power players to to buy in that they're going to really hurt their profits down the line if they allow this to happen. Yeah, there's no economy on a dead planet, right? Exactly. I mean, there's not much profit in that. No. <laughs> so and I think they're realizing that. I think you're right. Um, so you, you say in the book that we're coming on to a climate action tipping point that could be looming in the very near future. So what are the key ingredients for arriving at that tipping point for real change? Yeah, I think, you know, a number of things have just sort of fortuitously come together. Um, in, if you'll forgive the expression, sort of a perfect storm of circumstances that actually create a very favorable environment now for, for change. Uh, one of them is what we've been talking about. The, the impacts are now playing out in real time. We don't have to use our imagination. This has become very real to all too many people. And denial, you know, just isn't credible anyway. So we've moved away from denial. We do face these other obstacles that I describe in the book. But people get it. Um, there's a, a new awareness, uh, the youth climate movement with, that has really recentered this issue on our ethical obligation to each other, to this planet, to future generations, to act before it's too late. And ju just sort of the political winds um, uh, right now that are uh, at our back, you know, uh, favorable winds when it comes to climate action, where in this last election, we elected a president who campaigned on climate, who has a mandate on climate, and is uh, very clearly telegraphing that he plans to make good on his obligations, on his promises, and is doing so. And there's an opportunity, even for climate legislation in the new Congress, 
So the political winds are favorable and just sort of the larger conversation, <clears throat> the tragic events that have unfolded over the last year, um, the pandemic um, and, and all of the sort of issues that that raises, the, you know, it sort of opened our eyes to the deadliness of anti-science, ideologically motiv motivated denial of science. We can measure the toll of that in hundreds of thousands of human lives because of the ideologically motivated attacks on Anthony Fauci and the public health community and what they were saying about what we needed to do. Um, and the cultural moment that we're going through right now when it comes to basic matters of cultural justice, of racial justice, um, and that intersects with climate justice, which obviously is you know, part of the climate crisis. And so all of these sort of movements that are afoot, sort of renewed activism around basic issues of justice has created the opportunity for a very important moment, a very important conversation about you know, our sustainable existence on this planet and what will be necessary um, for that. So I actually think that all of this, and maybe it's just fortuitous or maybe it's not, but all these things have come together in a way that uh, really places us in the best position we've been in since I've been in this game um, to actually finally see the meaningful action that we need on climate. Well, that's good to hear. You're, you're out there on the front lines, so that's good to hear. You know, but the, the big one, the big elephant in the room is all this disinformation, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable the disinformation that's everywhere. What are we going to do about that? I mean, it's, you talk about you know Fauci and all the things yeah. that they changed in the CDC just so you couldn't get information. Yeah. And then I mean that's the kind of thing that's going on where, with with the web and with what's going on, you 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 get a lot of stuff that's just not true and it's hard to discern for everybody, including myself you know who reads a lot and tries to make yeah. sure to follow up right i mean we look into what what's true or what's not true How, what's gonna what do you feel about that i feel is that we've sort of looked into the abyss here you know with of course the disinformation the deadly disinformation about the pandemic and the denial of the, the science and and, and and large numbers of people who refuse to just take the basic measures necessary to help prevent massive um numbers of, of deaths and, um, and other, um, you know, and, and the broader health impacts that this pandemic has brought with it. Uh, the storming of the Capitol, which was a low point in our democracy, um, I think it opened some eyes. I think collectively, not every, you know, we still have that, that fringe sort of Trump supporting crowd and, and, and we're gonna have to continue to contend with that for some time. But I think the majority of us realize that we have collectively looked into the abyss and not liked what we have seen. And maybe we're now having that reckoning. Maybe now we recognize that we went way too far down that road. We allowed things to progress way too far in that direction. And there is a collective recoiling and a reaction against that that will guide policy and in, in, and and more generally our public discourse in the years ahead so i'm optimistic about that uh it's a shame that we had to reach such a low point to finally have that reckoning but i think that's what's happened here 
Yeah, at the end of your book, you say hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. Alone, it won't solve this problem, but drawing upon it, we will. Uh, thanks for for mentioning that. You know, uh, the Shawshank Redemption. That's from the end of Shawshank Redemption, uh, one of my favorite films. Uh, mm -hmm, one of my mine favorite too. Actors, uh, Tim Robbins, and just the other day, a high point for me was uh, Tim actually tweeted a uh, that scene where he's in the car heading down to Mexico. Uh, for whatever reason, and I commented on it, and then he replied, and he thanked me for my work, and so it was a real nice moment, um, because I do end on that note, and that's what that movie means to me. There's a larger message. Um, hope is a good thing, and there are reasons still for, for hope, for cautious optimism. I think you're right. Thank you, Professor Michael E. Mann. His new book is The New Climate Wars, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. I think it is a valuable look at where the climate change debate stands and where humanity needs to go to save the planet. It's also very valuable for any of us trying to figure out what the hell is going on in this age of <laughs> disinformation and denialism. Thank you for writing it. It's great. And thanks for coming on Digging in the Dirt. Oh, thank you, Kevin. It's always a pleasure and happy to come back again sometime. Oh, great. I love it. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindhedirtradio.com. <laughs>